morning. This is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. Good morning, people. It is 1024 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It is April the 5th, 2019. This is episode 81 of Bitcoin and, and I am late. I'm late to the I'm late to the party today, people. I apologize, but uh, I had a very important date with my son and his kindergarten class luau. That's right, man. A whole gymnasium full of kindergartners, and it was basically Hawaiian Day. Uh, no, it was, it was fun. I mean, when you get pat when you get past the fact that you've got a bunch of six year olds trying to you know, play musical instruments and do the hula and, and, uh, tell me interesting facts about the big Island. And, and that apparently the trigger fish is the state fish of Hawaii. I would have never guessed. And apparently trigger fishes make a sound like a pig when you pull them out of the water. So even I learned something from kindergarten today. Uh, what are we going to be doing today? Well, we're going to talk a little bit uh, more about biochar, but not the char itself because we've already covered that. This is the gasification process that makes biochar and other byproducts, uh, as you know, as essentially waste streams from the production of biochar, all of which are useful. And we're going to get into that. Uh, we're going to do morning roundup vitals, uh, Marty's bent daily train wreck, you know, it's the general lineup. So let's get rolling with, they invoked governance. Whenever a bunch of greedy miscreants are going to get us into serious trouble, they always use governance quote. It's 105 founding members, including ripple labs, consensus, AG and Bitfury will support a transparent, and inclusive model of governance. What the hell is this all about? Well, this is from the block. <clears throat> it says a new EU blockchain association was launched yesterday. And this was from a couple of days ago with the aim to promote blockchain technology in Europe, the international association of trusted blockchain applications in Taba is planning a predictable, transparent, and trust-based global framework in order to foster blockchain adoption. Its 105 founding members, including Ripple Labs, Consensus AG, and Bitfury, will support the development of interoperability of global standards, as well as a transparent and inclusive model of governance, according to a press release. In Taba has a strong international backing. The European Commission, the World Bank, the OECD, UNICEF, let me say that again, UNICEF and the European Investment Bank are just some of the heavyweights in the group's governmental advisory board, or GAB. 
Quote, we are thrilled to see that over 100 companies and organizations have partnered together to help develop the framework for distributed ledger technologies in Europe, said Maria Gabriel, European Commission for the for the Digital Economic uh, sorry, digital economy and society. Quote, it clearly signifies that blockchain technology will be a driving force in our economy for the coming years. And through Intaba, we will be able to foster an environment that encourages the application of the technology across the EU member states. Uh, uh, okay, so that's the end of that. Uh, you, clearly, the inclusion of Ripple Labs automatically may, just causes me a great big guffaw. Um, I don't, I don't see this. I mean, okay, two things: the good and the bad. There's always probably good and bad to everything. The good thing is adoption. You're seeing it more and more and more, and it's kind of all about adoption, right? The bad ripple. I mean, is there anything left to be said? And non, I mean, these guys hanging out with non-governmental organizations or NGOs, there's nothing non-governmental about a non-governmental organization. Anybody who thinks that that actually is a, a thing I'm sorry, man. It's not a thing. It, it's it's not a thing. There's nothing non-governmental about non-governmental uh, organizations. Uh, UNICEF being part of this kind of makes me also laugh. <laughs> I just I'm like UNICEF. I haven't heard of UNICEF since the freaking 1970s, and all of a sudden they're into blockchain. Okay, well, whatever. Uh, the the uh, it's problematic at best on the bad side. Problematic at best. Uh, governance is always, everybody talks about it, it you know, every, well, what I mean, everybody talks about it like it's something that, it's something that doesn't exist, but it does exist. We saw the UASF, we saw a whole bunch of people being the governors together. That's sort of the point, Right sort of the, the the whole the whole thing is whichever way the chain's going to vote you know and the voting is who i don't know the amount of nodes and and what they're signaling for and i'm i'm stumbling over the fact how much governance do we need and i'm not talking just in the time chain space i'm i'm going to try to start using time chain instead of blockchain but in the whole space, or or even outside of this whole space, how much more governance do we actually need? Because all I'm seeing is a bunch of crap that always ends up bad, no matter what it is. We've been at war for over 30 years, straight. We've always been at war. We're getting into the whole 1984 aspect of it. And every time at this point, every time somebody says, we need governance, I want to run away. I just absolutely run a, want to run away, and I want to run away from anything that has UNICEF and blockchain in the same sentence. <laughs> okay. Um, now, I ran across this uh, interesting thing. Uh, it was either yesterday or the day before. Uh, my tweet on this is, only in infancy, but crypto iTech is trying to do something really cool with crypto it dot net. 
People are building everywhere, and it's the longest bear market in Bitcoin's history. I guess it's the bear market still. I, I mean, I don't know. Whatever. Just it. I just whatever. Okay, so this is from I. I, I picked this up from uh, a guy at Crypto Itech. So C R Y P O P T O I T E C H, and the oh his website is C R Y P T O I T dot net. And it is really, it's really interesting. Um, I'm on the page right now and it's, it says with crypto Institute of technology, you can skip the never ending articles and get guided hands-on training in cryptocurrencies and cryptography. And then essentially it's, he's this, this one guy doing it. Okay. He doesn't have it. He doesn't look like he's got any help. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff that is, is, you know, coming soon, but essentially it's sort of like, I can't remember the name, but there's several websites that kind of teach coding. Um, and they do it in a way where the compiler is kind of embedded in the, uh, in the webpage itself. So you're not, in, so you just write code and then it either works or it doesn't. And you can see like, you've got an editor pane and then you've got the results pane and everything happens in the background. So whatever code you write, what like if you're learning C sharp or C or C plus or C plus plus or whatever the hell it is that you want, um, it takes you through these lessons. But this thing, instead of teaching a code in the way that those other things do it, it's all centered around blockchain technology or time chain or Bitcoin. Uh, it, it, Pretty much the only thing that that I've got uh, can see up right now is uh, a lesson called private keys, and there seems to be one out of four. And the way that uh, numbers are generated. So let me give you. Uh, I'm I'm on this particular page right now, and it says, for this step, you're going to start making a private key. The first requirement for your private key is that it is a random number. The second requirement is that the random number generator needs a standard or needs to meet a standard called CSPRNG, which stands for cryptograph- Cryptographically Secure Pseudo-Random Number Generator. To meet the standard, we'll provide you with a random number generator from our crypto library. Step one, generate the number. Use random parentheses close parentheses to create a random number to return that number. And on the left hand, so that's on the right hand side. And then on the left hand side is an editor. Okay, so I haven't really been able to go through this, but in my contact with this particular person uh, at Crypto iTech, he's saying that what he wants to do is teach coding through the lens of Bitcoin, and I think he's going to go into Litecoin and Ethereum. And yeah, I know, grown, grown, grown. Uh, but Bitcoin is like first up, you know, is basically kind of first up here. Um, so you know, and you know. <sighs> Lots of people are starting to get interested in coding. I mean, I couldn't code myself out of a wet paper bag with holes in it. Hell, and even I'm interested in coding. I mean, I've done some stuff in C Sharp because of Unity Game Engine. But, you know, I mean, I wouldn't survive. I, I mean, I'd be, somebody would say, hey, you know, build this. And without Stack Overflow, five books and like 12, you know, web pages open, I'd, I'd die a horrible horrible and very untimely and probably undignified death. That said, this guy is kind of using that, that model 
of how to teach programming through, you know, a, through a, a, a web GUI, but through the lens of Bitcoin technology, which I think is, I think is great for the space. I really do. So if you get a chance, go over and, and check it out. CRY or crypto, crypto it, I guess it would be probably crypto it.net would be about the best way to say that. Next up is also from the block crypto Cumberland, the cryptocurrency OTC shop run by Chicago based DRW says its desk saw more than 10 separate bids of more than 1000 BTC orders within an hour. My have mercy. Cumberland, the cryptocurrency OTC shop run by Chicago based DRW says its desk saw more than 10 separate bids of more than 1000 BTC orders within an hour late Monday evening. The OTC shop released post-trade analysis of that night's Bitcoin rally, which saw a 20% surge in one hour, stating the volumes, quote, appear to be actual buyers versus forced liquidations in a desk update tweet. In a separate tweet yesterday, Cumberland noted that for the first time in eight weeks, the price of Bitcoin had risen by more than 10%, adding, quote, we are watching for 5,000, the next even number, and 5,500 to 5,800. The later range, representing previous resistance points, which were tested during BTC's run-up and down to 20,000. Operating since 2014, DRW Cumberland trades upwards of 40 crypto assets, OTC, and recently rolled out a new electronic trading platform dubbed Maria to interact with its trading counterparties. So, um, yeah, that this is just kind of like, the I guess this kind of go filing under what the hell happened because I woke up and I, I guess it was Tuesday morning because I missed it. I was I, I literally went to bed that night before the run up and uh I think I went to bed 20 minutes before all this shit started. And then by the time it was all said and done, I was just waking up, cranked up my computer, see the Jesus candle and go, what the hell happened? So this is sort of like, you know, more news as to the fact that there looked to be some fairly serious volume. And and this is on the heels of other reports that I've read that suggest that a whole bunch of people have been buying OTC for a long, 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 long time. And then all of a sudden they just start spot buying on the market um, in, in, in the general market and then basically caused all the stuff that they had been buying beforehand OTC to essentially surge. Who knows if this is going to crash back down? I, you know, I don't know, but like I said earlier, I guess on Wednesday, the Jesus candle is already printed. It's always going to be there. We can, you know, it's, it's psychologically kind of in, in people's heads now. So, um, there's that on up the stack board with the crypto space. Never fear, a new shitcoin is on the way. <clears throat> also from theblockcrypto.com, O1 Labs, the team behind the Coda pro- protocol, has raised a new round of financing from investors including Accomplice, Coinbase Ventures, Paradigm, and General Catalyst. O1 Labs announced the Coda protocol in May 2018 and subsequently raised a $3.5 million seed round. Today, the team announced an additional $15 million in new funding to build out its zero-knowledge-proof-backed blockchain. 
According to O1 Labs, the CODA protocol leverages zero-knowledge proofs, the technology used by the likes of Zcash, to substitute, quote, traditional blockchain for a tiny, portable, cryptographic, cryptographic proof about the size of a few tweets, end quote. This cryptographic method enables CODA's blockchain uh, to be small enough that it can be used and verified from websites and mobile devices. Through its tiny blockchain, CODA will make it possible to easily develop wide-reaching applications while being governed and validated by its users. We hope this makes marks a step or makes a step toward allowing people to have more access and usability from a cryptocurrency in quote, O one labs co-founder Evan Shapiro said in a statement. So is it, it's a shit, is it a shit chain? I don't know, man. I just, I'm, I'm, I still am, you know, along the lines that if it can be done, it can be done on Bitcoin. And there's just no reason to have 5,000 different ones of these things out in the, out in the open, out in the wild. Uh, I should be, you know, cause I do talk a lot about ecology. I should probably be a little bit more lenient, but I'm not because every single time this shit happens, people get all in a tizzy, they mortgage their house, they buy the shit chain and lose their ass. I just can't, you know, I can't, I can't help you if, you know, I just, I just can't there. I, I doubt seriously, just in reality, just being a realist, I doubt seriously that Bitcoin is going to be the only thing in existence. Not because it's sh- not because it, it shouldn't be, but just because again, we're in a natural world. The natural systems in the world have a tendency to be fractal and those patterns come back again and again in different forms. And because we live in that, the chances are, are that just one species is probably not going to exist no matter what we want. So there's probably, I don't know. I, it'd be pure conjecture. I'm thinking 10 is going to be left over after the giant, after this, the washout of, of BS finally gets over. Um, do I still like any of those? No, not really, ex- except for Doge, but only because it's a meme. Okay. And it started as a joke that got out of control. So I have massive respect for anything that starts as a joke and gets out of control. <laughs> uh, what's up in the stack next? It looks like, oh, yeah, I'm not even going to do that. It's Bitcoin magazine has Bitcoin at 5,000. What has changed since 2017? And I'm going to say nothing. <laughs> but this one, um, which is not exactly uh, crypto or Bitcoin related, although it, it, I guess it could be. But Reuters has a, a piece out, Google to pull plug on artificial intelligence ethics council. And this is just, I don't know, it's, it's short and it's ridiculous. So I thought I'd read it. Alphabet Incorporated's Google said on Thursday, it was dissolving a council it had formed a week earlier to consider ethical issues around artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies. The council had run into controversy over two of its members, according to online news portal Vox, which first reported the dissolution of the council The council, and here it is, people, launched on March 26th. 
was meant to provide recommendations for Google and other companies and researchers working in areas such as facial recognition software, a form of automation that has prompted concerns about racial bias and other limitations. Of course, y'all bring race into it. By all means, just drag that son of a bitch right out in the street, okay? My God. The eight-member Advanced Technology External Advisory Council, ATIAC, included technology experts and digital ethicists. Ugh. Quote, it's become clear that in the current environment, ATIAC can't function as we wanted, so we are ending the council and going back to the drawing board, a Google representative said in an emailed statement. The Vox report said Google employees had signed a petition calling for the removal of one of the members over comments about transsexual people and added that the inclusion of a drone company executive had raised debate over use of Google's AI for military applications. So it lasted for two weeks. Two weeks. Let me say that again. Two weeks. Didn't do shit. Already dissolved. And all, all manner of, of problems. But one of the reasons why I want to bring that up is digital ethicist. The hell is a digital ethicist? I've read things from bioethicists that suggest that it's morally and ethically acceptable to kill a child after it's born. I'm not talking about third trimester abortions, people. I'm not talking about like abortion. I'm talking about after the little guy is born, you should be able to kill it. I'm just like, what? How the hell is that? That isn't murder. I don't know, man, but whatever, whatever. If people like that can say shit like that, then what the hell can a digital ethicist screw up? I'm here to tell you, man, just, Keep your own counsels when dealing with this crap and watch what, what Alphabet's doing like a hawk. And if it scares the crap out of you, tr- do your best to stay away because a digital ethicist that's sitting on a Google board is not going to have your back. I, I just, I don't trust them. I I just don't. I, I, I can't. They just screw up time and time and time again. Um <clears throat> Getting getting to the end of the stack, we have, hello, this is my tweet from yesterday, hello at SQ Crypto, which is Square Crypto from, uh, from the Square Company that we all know and love. I'd like to take a moment and introduce you to the accounts of at Get Honey Miner and at Try Lolly. I think y'all get along like a house on fire and remember to buy Bitcoin. What am I referring to? Well, I'm retweeting Square Crypto's tweet from yesterday. Hey, guys management here. A lot of you are asking if at Jack writes these tweets. To be clear, these tweets are written by four black cats using a Wi-Fi connected Ouija board. Whenever we try to revoke their access, something howls in the basement. I love these guys. And that's one of the reasons why I, you know, I I feel it a moral imperative to, to make sure that people like this get in touch with people like the, the Twitter account manager for uh, Get Honey Miner and Trilolly because both of those companies have great tweets too. Funny as shit. It, every time I read anything from any of these companies, it's, you know, it's like either it's a really important piece of information or it's really, really funny or it's a really piece of important information wrapped in something really, really funny. 
And so, yeah, I just wanted to mention those, you know, those three accounts, because if you're not following those three accounts, you're missing out on some damn good entertainment, man. And like I've said before, and we'll say again, if any group of people on the face of the planet needs some entertainment and some humor right now, it is us. (laughs) There's no lie there, man. Uh, Last thing I'm going to mention, Bolts HQ. We are excited to announce the alpha release of Bolts. A trust-minimized, account-free exchange built on top of the Lightning Network. Check out our blog for more info or try a swap on bolts.exchange. P.S. Already loops in and out at Lightning. So bolts.exchange. Apparently, you can send submarine swaps through, uh, through a GUI. Uh, That's, this is, you know, is in alpha, as far as bolts, uh, the bolts mainnet is concerned. That's what it says on the, on their website, but I can send them Litecoin and convert it directly to BTC. And I don't require an account. I think this is interesting. I know the howling in the background from the complete maximalist and I get it. I get it because we're talking about Litecoin. I don't know if we're going to be able to escape it, people. I just don't. I mean, I, I don't, should Litecoin been around? I don't know. I just, I really only give a shit about Bitcoin. I mean, I don't see the need for all the rest of this stuff, but then again, I don't know why I would, it's sort of like that, that there's a scene in, in the movie contact, uh, it's very last and they're trying to give her a, a suicide pill before she goes on her trip. And she's like, I don't understand why I need this in, in, in my pack. And the guy's like, dude, we, I, I can tell you a hundred reasons why you need to have this pill, but it's for all the reasons that we can't think of that you need this pill. I don't know if it's going to be the same thing here. And I, right now, I don't think I need to give a shit because whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But as far as bolts is concerned, I mean, I've, I think I've got like a pocket full of Litecoin in some hardware wallet that I haven't touched in forever in a day. And I could convert it directly to BTC and then sweep it into my into my thing. I don't know why the hell not. But you know, we we might touch on on what's necessary uh, here in a minute. Uh, not necessary. Why these chains might you know like like I said, a handful of chains. And I'd I'd much rather deal with Litecoin than I would Ripple, any day of the week and twice on Sunday, man. Just because it's it's old, I mean, and Doge for that for that matter, because they're old chains, you know, they're they're really 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 old. Nobody knows really who who has anything to do with Doge. Charlie Lee is always going to be you know a, a potential impediment to Litecoin, even though he says he's like kind of hands off or or did that whole sell at the top and say he was hands off. I I don't know, but. This kind of thing, we may revisit this back when we get into the gasification stuff for biochar. But other until then, that is going to do it for your morning roundup. Vital statistics brought to you by BitInfo.charts. Sorry, BitInfoCharts.com. Bitcoin is at an average of four thousand nine hundred seventy-nine. The low is going to be over at Right BTC at four thousand nine hundred and seventy-one, 
And the high is going to be over at, God, these are all really close. Really close. GDAX at 4,993. Dude, that's some of the tightest banding I've seen. Because like I'm looking at, let's see, the average is coming from one, two, three, four, five different uh, prices. And all these prices are within this really tight margin. Wow, that's that's kind of amazing. Uh, transactions over the last 24 hours, 390,000, uh, giving an average per hour of 16,250. 1.18 million BTC have been sent over the last 24 hours, with an average being sent per hour of 50,000 BTC. Average transaction value is 3.04 BTC, and the median is at 0.06 BTC, or right around 300 bucks. Block time's low. Gee, I, I wonder why that might have happened. I guess we'll find out when we look at hash rate. Uh, eight minutes and 53 seconds. So it's 10%. It's <laughs> 10% higher. Um, well, let's see. Where is... Oh, yeah. Uh, 0.85 BTC have been taken in fees per block, and a total of 134.8 BTC has been taken in fees over the last 24 hours. We have a 2.56% increase in hash rate, bringing us to 46 exa hashes per second. Last GitHub commit was yesterday. Uh, left to right, Ethereum is at 163. Litecoin is at 87. Bcash is at 286. BSV is at 83. Ethereum Classic is at $5.67. And Dogecoin is at 0. 0.003. Four man, nice, totally nice. Uh, okay, Dogecoin transactions over the last 24 hours at 27,000 has not topped the cumulative uh transactions over the last 24 hours of Bcash and BSV, uh, B which is 21,000 and 9,000 respectively. Other than that, yeah, screw those guys, man. That's gonna do it for your vital statistics. All right, so today's discussion about biochar is going to focus on the creation of biochar. And so essentially what happens in the creation of biochar is that I, I, I was saying like, you know, wood or other biomass or, you know, like grass clippings or leaves or whatever. But really, man, you can make this stuff out of anything as long as it has organic chemistry involved. Um, although I probably wouldn't try it with plastic, but whatever. Uh, we're talking like, you know, cow manure, horse manure, uh, straw, trees, wood chips, grass clippings, you know, human waste, like, you know, fe uh, fecal matter and, and shit like that. <laughs> you can do it like, you know, municipal trash again, not plastic. So like the you know, old, like you go pick up barrels of old food out of, you know, the back of, uh, furs, you know, ca a cafeteria or something like that. And you can make biochar, make biochar out of it, but you can basically also get all of the, the, the cool stuff that comes out the other side during the gasification process. So don't be fooled. This isn't really, this process of making biochar doesn't have to be just wood. Um, it's, it can be a whole bunch of different things. It can't be everything, 
but it can be a whole bunch of different stuff that we throw away pretty much every single day. So, you know, what's, what's the process? Well, essentially it's an oven. Uh, When you get right down to it, you're baking this stuff. You just happen to be baking it at really high temperatures. Uh, I saw a couple of people uh, doing uh, infrared, infrared temperature measurements, you know, with like a, a thermal gun and just kind of shooting it into the burn chamber. Um, and we're talking not in the chamber, the not in the oven chamber, but basically the heating underneath the chamber that cooks all the wood. And it was like, it was rocking out at a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know what that is in Celsius people. I I, I just don't think that way. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm an American. I, I deal in gallons. <laughs> Actually, that's not entirely true. Trained in science, I got really used to volumes in um, in the the metric system, but yeah, temperatures. I just never got around to mental conversions. Uh, I didn't need to liquids like liquids and and distances. I can I can do pretty well with, but uh, no, not temperature. So a thousand degrees Fahrenheit in the burn chamber uh, that was heating that was heating the wood. That's pretty freaking high, and the way that this works is that you, you load up your, and there's, okay, first of all, there's several different ways, several different ways to skin this cat. There's several different styles of ways to make biochar. And I'm not going to go into any of them other than to just talk about it in generic terms. Generic terms is you have a closed oven that you put the actual mass that you want to convert to biochar in. That oven is heated by whatever it is that you have to burn. It can be electric. I don't recommend it. It could be natural gas. It could be propane. You could fire it with another wood fire underneath. I mean, there's like any number of ways to get this shit cranked up. But that's the thing, is that once you load your feedstock into the oven, no matter what feedstock it is and no matter what the size is, all of that will be determined by what kind of, uh, what kind of system you're using, how big or small it is, blah, blah, blah. But again, generically, once your feedstock is in the oven, it takes energy external to the system to get the system spun up. And what do I mean by that? You've got to have some heat source to begin with. You can't just put a bunch of wood in this oven and have it and then just say, hey, you know, wood, cook yourself. That doesn't work. We all know that. So to start, you need to have a very hot heat source to get this thing up to temperature. And the temperature is where this stuff starts occurring, the reactions, the off-gassing of the stuff, the aromatics and the burnable gas, the, the burnables that are going to be converted into gas later on, that starts happening at about 250 to 350 degrees. Yes, yeah, 250 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, but it's very, very slow, clearly. So you crank it up a little bit more and a little bit more. And when you get up to a certain temperature, and again, it varies on the equipment. But at one point or another, the gases that start coming off of this thing will continue the system cooking. The wood will then get to a point where the gases from the wood will 
continue to cook the wood itself. So then the wood becomes self-cooking, and then the entire thing is a cycle until all the gases are off-gassed out of the wood, and at that point, the system kind of shuts down all by itself because there's no more fuel. It's kind of... Nature has this amazing ability to self-balance, right? Well, this is one of the examples of that self self, uh, in other words, self-governing. When it's out of gas, the process is done. So it's, you know, it's, it's done because it can't fuel itself anymore. It's, it's, I, I just love the way this shit works in either event. <clears throat> the, the gas that's coming off of it continues the reaction until the reaction is done. And then you let everything cool down because you're talking about a thousand degrees Fahrenheit when you're in like the larger systems. If you were to open that oven, the minute oxygen hits hits that wood, which is still sitting there at about 500 degrees Fahrenheit, it's going to automatically convert to ash, carbon dioxide, and water vapor. I mean, that's it, man. It's just burn. It'll just burn all up within a matter of minutes. So you have to let it com- come down to like 100 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, 98, maybe like, you know, you probably open it up at 120 or something like that. Essentially, people will let this stuff cool down for an entire day before they unjack it the the oven and and pull all the the char out to make damn sure that all the work they put into it doesn't just go up into ash because it was still too hot and they introduced oxygen to a very hot amount of pure carbon which is really combustible man um okay so but there uh, what i'm getting at here is that as the wood off gases not everything that it off gases goes into the gas that is used to actually burn the chamber underneath to ke- to keep the heat going to keep the reaction going um there are a there are three direct waste streams from the process of gasification of biomass actually there's there's four one's biochar but we've already been through that the other one is the syngas or the biogas that comes off of it that is the gas that's used for the to keep the reaction going Clearly, there's heat that comes off of this thing. And then there's one other thing that is a really interesting product called wood vinegar. And like I said, biochar, we've already covered. If you haven't, uh, uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's in episode 80. And then I began this week talking about biochar and gasification in episode 79, which was Monday's show. Um, So, what's syngas? Well, syngas. A lot of studies have been done on it. It varies as to its composition. But essentially, all you really need to know about it is that the majority of it is hydrogen gas and carbon monoxide. Let me say that again. Carbon monoxide, CO, not CO2. And carbon monoxide is extraordinarily flammable because it is, as a molecule that really kind of exists in nature naturally and stably as CO2. The fact that it's CO means that this molecule is looking to party down as a threesome. All right. It is going to get another oxygen atom in that chain so that they can all have fun together. And because of that, carbon monoxide and a heat source in the presence of oxygen, that's where that party is going to happen, man. So it is... It's ready to roll. Very flammable. Clearly, hydrogen is flammable. Think Hindenburg. Um, And then there is trace amounts of uh, C4. I'm I'm sorry, not C4. 
uh, CH4, which is also methane, which is clearly very flammable. It's essentially natural gas. There's not as much of it, though, as a, as a hydrogen and, C, and, and carbon monoxide, which is probably about 80%. And then there's, you know, there's some water and, and other stuff in there. But there's also, in, in, in the trace analysis, there's about 200 other organic chemicals that are in there that don't make it past the biofilter and gets shunted to the other side. And that shit's called wood vinegar. And wood vinegar is, is really an interesting, interesting thing. Um, after, you know, researching more into it, let me just say that if you've ever bought a bottle of Wright's liquid smoke at the grocery store to add smoke flavor to meat, there's two things that I have to say for it to you. Learn how to barbecue and don't use that shit. And second of all, wood, wood vinegar is completely safe. Com, I don't know. I'm going to say completely safe for human consumption. If you're using it, you're bad, bad. You're a bad griller. You, this is why we smoke meats, right? You get that when you're smoking meat on a barbecue, right? This wood vinegar happens naturally. And it permeates the meat, which is why like a slow smoked, you know, like Boston butt or uh, ribs or whatever, you know, brisket or whatever it is. That's one of the reasons why you slow smoke it, because as this wood, as this, as the wood is burning, it is also in the process of gasification, although it's in the process of gasification in the presence of oxygen, which means that all those gases are actually going to burn off, which is why you get the fire. Also in that is the same amount of stuff that is going to be produced in the production of biochar. In a barbecue, it condenses over everything. That's why you get like, that's how smoked meats work, right? So it's a preservative. We eat it all the time. So when we say like, you know, wood vinegar and you go, oh God, you know, it's like basically condensed chemistry from, from the inside of a tree, one would think that that might not be safe, but this is pretty safe. Again, don't use it. it like the, the liquid smoke, don't go buy it. Just learn how to barbecue. It, it's, it'll be fine. And you'll have much more fun learning how to barbecue because it's like fishing. It's a reason to stand outside, do nothing, drink beer, and be able to tell people, I can't do, go do that right now. I'm watching the grill. All right, so um, what is this stuff? Now, it, it's interesting that that liquid smoke or wood vinegar has a chemical name, and it's pyroligneous acid. So pyro from fire, ligneous comes from lignin. You can think of that as wood fiber because lignin is in wood. And then acid just basically means that it exists in an acidic form. So pyri, pyroligneous acid. And it's a 100% organic fertilizer and pesticide pest repellent, which I find really interesting. Because at this point, we're pulling off, um, we're pulling off, and I'm going to get to some metrics here in a little bit. Um, We're pulling off quite a bit of this wood vinegar along with everything else. Remember, right now, we're just talking about wood vinegar. Um, so it's a hundred percent organic fertilizer and a pesticide and a pest repellent. 
Now, the one of the problems is, is that it's also fungicidal. Okay, I talk a lot about micro, mycorrhizae. Now, I don't know how fungicidal it is. Um, and I guess it d- would depend on your application. If you've got a fungus that's hitting your leaves, you know, on like the, the pl- parts of the plants, trees and stuff above ground, then spraying a mixture of this wood vinegar with water over it probably be okay. A soil drench where you make up gallons of, of a mixture like, you know, I can't remember exactly what the ratio is, but it's like anywhere between one to 500, you know, one unit of vine- wood vinegar to like 500 units of water, which is a pretty severe dilution. If you're using that as a soil drench, it might negatively affect the fungus in your soil unless you're the fungus in your soil at like particular place you know is not the fungus that you want. And because there are funguses that are you don't want, most of them are good. Some of them are not good. Okay, if you know the critter that you're dealing with, you may want to use this stuff. I I I just kind of I'm kind of on the fence as to whether or not to soil drench it. And I'm on the fence because all the other cool stuff that it does, because overall it's a massive soil enrichment. The fact that it's fungicidal really, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to have to look more into this as far as, well, does it kill mycorrhizae? Because you need that in your soil. You don't want to kill that. Um, so that's why I'm on the fence. And one of the other things that it does is it enhances seed germination. So if you soak seeds in wood vinegar or a diluted mixture of wood vinegar, your seed germination rates actually increase. So, and the, the, the thing about the, the other components in wood vinegar is that there's a bunch of sugars and they're all different kinds of sugars and different kind of like a lot of people might think when I, you know, when, when somebody says sugars, they might only think of like glucose, dextrose, fructose, but there are thousands of configurations of sugars. I mean, thousands it's actually mind blowing just how important these sugars are to biological systems. Uh, they are studded all over your cells. They are studded all over your plant, all over plant cells. They act as regulators in the immune system. They act as signals for other uh, proteins to connect with that cause other things in the cell that are necessary to happen to happen. Um, so, the sugars being available in this bioavailable form through this wood vinegar, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna supercharge your soil. Uh, again, not sure about the mycorrhizae, but if we don't worry about that part, this stuff will kick up. It will definitely kick up your soil insofar as what's in it. Um, so even the so what I'm getting at here is that the waste stream, the wood vinegar waste stream, isn't waste. It's yet another thing that you can use in your lawn, you know, on, on your plants. You can, uh, I've, I've read where you can, you know, mix it up and spray it on your plants and it causes water to be absorbed a little bit faster. It also absorbs some of the nutrients that are available directly from the wood vinegar and yada, yada, yada. And it repels pests and it does all, it, it kills bad nematodes and apparently, there's suggestion that it doesn't kill the good nematodes. I'm 
you know, I'm, I'm all about trying, you know, getting into this stuff because I didn't realize that the wood vinegar as a waste stream was not a waste. When I first got into uh, learning about this stuff, I was like, oh, well, great. Yet one more thing to throw away. Yeah. If you're going to throw away, you just throw it on your damn lawn and, and forget about fertilizing it forever. Um, uh, so that's for the, that's the wood vinegar. We'll, we'll revisit a little bit about that. But the other, you know, again, so you got biochar coming off this thing. You've got this wood vinegar coming off this thing and you've got heat coming off this thing. And while heat is self-explanatory, we could at least talk about it. If a facility, you know, would like a biochar production facility is connected to other systems, then that heat can be harvested. All right. Now in permaculture, we talk about a lot about systems connecting to each other so that one waste stream is an input to another, to a different system. What is, what is waste to one system is necessary input to, to a different system. And if you can daisy chain these, you know, these, these systems to where each system uses the waste stream of another one and stop thinking about that stupid movie, human centipede. If you thought about the movie, human centipede, turn me off right now because that movie is one of the worst things of humanity. The fact that somebody even made that movie makes me go, God, we were so close to being saved as a species. And then human centipede came out bad, bad listener, bad human centipede, bad. This is the kind of centipede that you want where one system that's not a human is using the waste stream of another system. And heat is a waste stream from this system. So clearly burnt, you know, doing this in winter is going to provide all the heat you would probably ever need if harvested correctly to run a greenhouse in the deepest of winters, as long as you got feedstock and you're constantly producing biochar, right? So there's that also in a greenhouse in the dead of winter is the fact that some people in greenhouses, instead of growing directly in the soil, and also those people that if they don't grow in soil, they might grow like on a concrete slab on these, you know, either in pots or, or whatever, but you don't even have to do that. You'd have a full blown aquaponic system and that's going to be a whole show. But essentially what you're doing is you're using fish to poop in water and that water is plants roots are actually suspended in the water. And the plant roots take up all the nutrients so that if you, if you do it right, if you balance the system right with the amount of fish, the amount of water, and the amount of plants, by the time the water gets to the other end, it's been completely washed out of all the fish waste. And I'm not talking about the poo. The solid poo gets separated out. I'm talking about the, the soluble stuff, which is nitrogen-based items. Right. So that the ammonia from the fish goes in, uh, turns into nitrite. And then the nitrite is converted by, by, by well, actually bacteria convert uh, ammonia to nitrite and then other bacteria convert and they all live in the water, convert the nitrite to nitrate. And the second that you hit nitrate, boom, plants can take it up in the roots. So all the nitrate that has been converted from the fish ammonia has been converted and 
is taken up into the plants. And by the time the water gets to the other end, it's returned back to the fish tank and is essentially clean or clean enough that it doesn't hurt the fish. And the the cycle just runs and runs and runs and you grow lettuce and greens and flowers and, and you sell all that shit. Right. And at the end of the day or at the end of the year, the fish is a protein yield. So you can either sell the fish or, you know, whatever you want in either event, most fish, if the water gets too cold, will either do one of two things, expire and float to the surface as little floaties, or they will basically stop eating food and stop crapping in the water, which means that the plants don't get nutrients. So the heat waste heat off a system like this can not only heat the greenhouse, but if you heat the heat greenhouse directly um, and then also heat the water, well, yeah, but if you just heat the water, the water acts as a thermal mass and the water itself, as it loses its heat, is captured by the greenhouse. So you don't even need two heating systems to, to harvest the same heat from the biochar uh, facility. You just need to heat water. That's it. That's it. So the whole deal behind how to capture heat the best way off a system like this is water jackets, a couple of pumps, and a massive heat exchanger with a shit ton of water in it. And that water goes into the system to actually heat the water in the aquaponic system, which in turn uh, heats the greenhouse or just heats the greenhouse if you're not doing an aquaponic system. In either event, the heat can be re- can be totally recycled. Now, in the summertime, especially where I live, a bit different. So I'm not going to get into that. Maybe I'll I'll talk about that on another show as to what we could do by burying the heat. And I would get into that on that show. But I want to go ahead and say, uh, get out of the whole heat waste stream and get back into a little bit of numbers here. Now, I came across a website. It's biochar.info. And I don't know. I mean, I, I... it's it, it's the only thing that kind of set me gave me a set of numbers and I'm not sure if I believe them or not but let me just let me just take you through this uh they have a couple of design biochar designs and one of them is sort of like a fixed in place uh biochar generator and they're saying that the lowest capacity the lowest capacity biochar plant like processing plant and we're talking about something that's, you know, it would be able to, the, the thing would be able to fit. I'm not going to say in your backyard, but it's not something that would be, you know, that you would have to be on the coast of, you know, Texas around Texas city with like, you know, freaking refinery. It's not that big at all. You know, some of these things can be, would be able to place on, be placed on site, you know, on a, on a few acres or something like that, you know, and I'm not even talking about, well, well, we'll get into it. Um, the lowest capacity plant that they have designs for will produce, they say, about four tons of biochar per day, 2,500 liters of wood vinegar per day, 8,400 kilowatt hours of electricity per day. Okay, electricity. That's the other part of the story for the syngas. Once the wood vinegar and all the stuff that can condense out of the gaseous materials in biochar can be is either well can be returned to the burn chamber to make sure that the process goes on. 
but you, you don't really need all of it. You can siphon some of it off. And that gas, by the time it goes through that process of what's being called cracked and cleaned up of all the wood vinegar, is clean as a whistle and can go directly into a generator and then run an electrical plant. And that's where, where they're talking about 84 uh, I'm sorry, uh, 84 kilowatts of elect- kilowatt hours of electricity is by using the syn gas to generate electricity rather than burning all of the gas. You still have to burn some of it to keep the temperature up in the burn chamber, but you can take the rest of it and run a generator and get 8,400 kilowatts of electricity. All right, so they're saying that they conservatively estimate revenue per day of $150 times four for the biochar. I'm guessing that they're suggesting that a ton of biochar would cost you 150 bucks. See, this is where I start kind of get, are these numbers really right? Because, but they're really the only numbers that I've really been able to come across that at least give me some kind of sense of where the hell we're headed. So, um, 150 times, uh, 150 per ton for biochar, $1 per liter for the wood vinegar and five cents per kilowatt for the or kilowatt hour for the electricity. Okay, they're saying this thing can make thirty five hundred or three thousand five hundred dollars five hundred twenty dollars a day. That's what they're saying. If you sell all the product and all you know all the biochar, all the wood vinegar, and and you utilize all the electricity and sell it all, you're you're right you're right there. So I don't know, but they're, you know, essentially they're talking about, I think I did the calculations and at five on five day work weeks at 50 weeks per year, apparently this thing can make $880,000 per year gross. I don't know if that actually would happen, but whatever. In either event, at the end of this, 50% of the carbon that you started with is saved in the form of biochar that you can shove in the ground and you can tell whatever tree hugging hippie freak that you just helped save the environment, whether you believe it or not. Right. I mean, if, if governments around the world, if, if, if there's a way for me to get away, get back the stolen money of my lifetime by taking a grant from a government to do this kind of shit, I would be on that thing in a heartbeat. I'd be writing a grant. I should be writing a grant right now, but I got other things to do. If one of you guys want to do it, man, knock yourself out because you could say, I know I, you go to AOC and say, I'm going to save the universe because I'm going to be able to figure out how to sequester 50% of carbon into the ground where farmers can grow crops with, and just give them the whole damn spiel about how, how all this works together. And you're done. Okay. So, with that, I'm going to conclude this week of biochar and gasification by saying that the electric generator can be used to run miners. I think the calculations are correct, and at 8,400 kilowatts per hour, you can run five between five and six S11s if you're going the ant miner around. It was just one of the easier numbers I could get a hold of. Um you could run five or six of them. Is that going to do you any good? No, <laughs> not really. You'd probably be better off just selling the electricity raw. But this was the, they're saying that this was the smallest plant. So more work's got to be done to figure out just how much we'd be able to squeeze out of this stuff. You know, it's, we're sort of rediscovering ancient technology, which is embarrassing. But 
that's sort of the reason why maybe the uh, some of the other like something like Litecoin or Doge or something else that doesn't require so much damn you know horsepower that may be why they survive is shit like this people finding new you know ways to harvest energy out in the middle of BFE and run a couple of I don't know what your shit coin of choice miner. Okay. And then through submarine atomic swaps, be able to, you know, swap it out for actual BTC, which is worth something that said, I am a shit coin minimalist. I can't be a Bitcoin maximalist because I own Doge and I'm not going to sell it. I have forever stated for the record that I can never be a Bitcoin maximalist because of that fact. I'm too damn lazy to go sell it. And I just, I like Doge. It's it's a really it's a cute coin. Come on, let's let's be honest here. And anyway, so that's going to conclude everything about the gasification and biochar process. I uh, hope you got something out of it. Um, if you did, let me know, man. Other than that, let's get into Marty's bent. And, oh wait, actually, I'm going to introduce Marty's bent with uh, a song. Uh, hold on for a sec. Yeah, this is going to be from a band called Strung Out by, with their song City Lights. And this uh, band got, I was turned on to this band by uh, my buddy Coin Icarus. Uh, thank you, Mr. Coin Icarus, for giving me this list of uh, punk bands, man. I'm, I'm, enjoy, I'm sort of enjoying having people uh, give me stuff. So I'm, I'm more than happy to have gone through that list and, and say, you know, I really like this Strung Out song. Never heard of this band before. Ever. So I hope you enjoy it, man.
Party's been is for Thursday, April the 4th, 2019, issue number 455, Checking In on Hell. ICO Drops is a Twitter account that he's got up here. It says a lot of users were disgruntled after a number of IEOs with FCFS type sales. Problems with access scripts and several other problems prove that this model is not optimal. What the hell is he talking about? Let's find out. <clears throat> Marty says, if you freaks are unaware of the hottest craze going on in the world of shit coinery, let me introduce you to the IEO or initial exchange offering. Oh, boy. This is the latest edition of the affinity scams that have been produced in the wake of Bitcoin's massive success. As the hype around ICOs has completely died down as a result of there being nothing too valuable or useful produced after billions of dollars were poured into them, IEOs have risen from the ashes like a zombie phoenix dead set on scamming retail investors out of their hard-earned money. Uh, I'm not very well educated on the nuances and mechanics of an IEO, but it seems like exchanges are making it easy for projects to facilitate an ICO-like offering, essentially taking on all the grunt work for these projects and making it easier to scam retail. <clears throat> the latest IEO that caught my eye was from Veriblock. The company currently filling up the Bitcoin network with transactions that uh, save its state in the Bitcoin blockchain using an op underscore return function. Honestly, not the biggest fan of them using Bitcoin in this way, but think they will eventually have to stop because it will get too expensive. Back to the IEO. As you can see from the tweet above, the initial distribution model is being gamed in a laughable way. Groups of VC minions around the world, huddled around, a com around computer monitors, running scripts written specifically to buy as much of the supply of the IEO as they can, completely bastardizing any chance of, even, of an even somewhat fair distribution that Veriblock was, quote, or uh, parentheses, probably not even in parentheses, hoping for. This is what the world of crypto has turned into. Overt money grabs exploited by people with capital and their hordes of windowless, room-dwelling keyboard slaves. My long-standing contention that Bitcoin's, quote, immaculate conception can never be replicated again due to the amount of attention that is focused on this space is only growing stronger as these I insert letter here O's get better at completely fudging their launches. I can see how proof of work coin launch could be closer to what Bitcoin's launch was like. And grin may be the most recent example of pulling off a somewhat fair POW launch, but even that was muddied by special interest from the get-go, in my opinion. This is an unpopular opinion. Well, of course, man. There's always the horde. Like it or not, I believe the way Bitcoin was launched was one of the best attributes. There were no VCs lined up with windowless room-dwelling keyboard slaves ready to buy up the full supply of an initial offering. There were no VCs lined up with GPUs ready to mine the shit out of the first blocks. And most importantly, there weren't many people paying attention. Bitcoin was mineable on a CPU when it first launched, and slowly but surely, people joined the network and their computing power, inciting a natural market progression from CPUs to FPGAs to GPUs to ASICs, as we use today. Very pure, if you ask me. Everything else is tainted with some shit incentives, in my humble opinion. Final thought, feels good to get the date correct. Been a bad write-the-correct-date week for Uncle Marty. Poor Marty. But we have a... Uh, we owe Marty uh, thanks for spending time writing these things up. Thank you, Uncle Marty. 
Torchlight. Hodel and Knot says the final stretch is here. LN Trust Chain now has only 10 spots left before we wrap this little adventure up. Torches with one of the first Bitcoin devs, Maddie Malmi. Invoice him for 4.19 mega Satoshis. Uh, let's see. Ruben Johnson says, what a journey. 10 exclusive spots left in the LN Trust Chain. I would fight for one if I had not already passed the torch. Who will be among the lucky last 10? An, any awesome suggestions out there? And I swear this reminded me of uh, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory with the uh, seven golden tickets or whatever. For some reason that just popped into my head and I had like a musical going on and then I came back to reality and, and ended up uh, at my kid's luau. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Maddie Malmy. Uh, let's see, this is going to be uh, M-A-R, oh, Marty, M-A-R-T-T-I-M-A-L-M-I, says he got the torch from Henry, who is Technomage, T-E-C-H-N-O-M-4-G-E. Apparently, the boy's name is Henry. So Marty got it from Henry, and I can't remember who Henry got it from, but it's, it should be sitting in the hands of Marty right now. Um, Renee Pickert says adding 10,000 Satoshi to pass the torch of the LN trust chain right now is like paying 10,000 BTC for pizza in the past at the time, a worthwhile experience to be proud of. I didn't hand the torch to Laszlo when I could. And then he's got a, a, you know, uh, a link to a linuxfoundation.org page. Uh, I just thought it was, I wanted to include that because, you know, sometimes I wonder if I'm just, you know, shitting out like, you know, 2000 Satoshis, like if I'm like going to tip somebody or something like that, could it really be $2,000 in 20 years from now? And if so, am I just going to just beat myself up because of it? I think the answer should be no. I really do. I think the whole Laszlo and the, you know, cause he, it's not like we, we talk about the, 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 uh, Bitcoin pizza guy, like he didn't know what he was doing. No, he knew exactly. Laszlo knew exactly what he was doing. He, he's a developer, man. The guy knew exactly what he was doing. He did not probably know how much value it was going to be, but he knew it was going to be more value than, than the pizza. He did it because it needed to set a price and that's what set the price. So keep that in mind, people. Uh, that's going to do it for Torchlight. Your daily train wreck was brought to me and via to you from Crypto Paradigm. Uh, I like this dude a lot. At C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-A-R-A-D-Y-M-E. And he, 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 he's got a tweet out there that's responding to, to the actual train wreck. And he says, as head of cult relations for BTC, there's some things to address here. And then he goes on to a rant. Well, not a rant. I mean, actually it's a very well thought out argument, but he's responding to quantum blocks who says waited 20 minutes for one confirmation on a Bitcoin deposit today, paid 40,000 Satoshis in fees. As of right now, BTC is unusable and it's not even mainstream yet. Bitcoin is deprecated tech now and layer two isn't going to fix this. Other options need to be considered. 
all people. I mean, I, I'm maybe I'll put together a book list of books you need to read about the internet and how it came about because all that's going on is yet another fractal from the universe throwing its pattern into our face. This is not the first time we've seen this. It's not going to be the last time we see this. This happens with every technology cycle ever. And I'm talking like before electricity, before the industrial revolution, before the agricultural revolution, all technologies have phases. All technologies end up being the base technologies of other technologies. Fire was a bitch to make when you were a freaking caveman. I'd like to see another caveman come up and say, waited 20 hours for my fellow caveman to start a fire, paid 40,000 splinters of, of wood in my hand. As of right now, fire is unusable and it's not even mainstream yet. Fire is deprecated tech now and any amount of technology to put on top of fire to make it more fire-like isn't going to fix fire and other options need to be considered. What? Fusion? Jesus. Terrible Joke Corner, as usual, brought to you by Bad Joke Cat. At Bad Joke Cat. Why do seagulls live by the sea? Because if they lived by the bay, they'd be bagels. Yeah, pretty rough, man. That's it, Braz. You guys know the drill, man. You guys go out, have a good weekend, have fun, do something constructive, start working around your house. Springtime doesn't last all that long, I guess, unless you're in the northern, you know, up north of me. I'm in the panhandle of Texas, so it's going to get hot soon. If you're in one of those climates, man, get out and do shit while the getting's good, because otherwise working in brutal heat, ugh. I'd, I'd, I'd rather not work in brutal heat. So I'm going to try to get as much done as I can in the spring. Other than that, y'all be safe, love one another, and I'll see you guys on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.